0: Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, and we're going to look at the 18th chapter of the book of 1 Kings together today. What kind of person does the Lord choose to use? Well, the answer is abundantly clear in Scripture, ordinary people. We see this in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, where Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God shows The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of this world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one would boast before Him. He chose Elijah. Elijah, according to the book of James, was a man who was of the same nature as we. He was a sinner who needed to be saved from his sin. He was a man who was obviously committed to the Lord. He was all in. He didn't leave anything on the table when it came to giving his life to the Lord. Nevertheless, he was an ordinary person. Do you see how in choosing that which is considered ordinary, if not inferior by the world, God the Father... Ensures his glory from our lives. It's so true, isn't it? Elijah. In the book of Ezekiel, the 22nd chapter, the 30th verse, God speaks to the prophet. He said, I searched for a man from among them who would build up the wall, and a man who would stand in the gap so that I would not destroy the nation of Israel. Sad words. But I found no one. Not even one person. When I think about our nation, our nation is badly in need of an Elijah. Or many people who understand that God uses ordinary people who are committed to Him to accomplish His purpose in the world. In that great passage of Scripture found in the book of Second Chronicles chapter 7, it talks about how God says, If I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, and I send locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence to the land, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal Their land. All kinds of suggestions are being made today about how to recover who we once were as Americans, as a nation. Well, the answer is very clear. It begins with me, and it begins with you who bear the name of God through Jesus Christ. And we are the answer, in a sense, to that dilemma if we will do those things which Scripture teaches. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Let's consider this great encounter that Elijah has with the most wicked king in all of the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. His name was Ahab. He was the son of Omri. And the Bible talks about him in no uncertain terms as being a man, who is counter-opposite to a man who seeks God. And if we'll take a quick look, you're in chapter 18, just turn back to 17 for just a moment, where we are introduced for the first time to this prophet Elijah. He's called a Tishbite. That is telling us where he's from, from Tishbe, who was of the settlers of Gilead, Said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. And that idea of being before whom I stand is an indication that this man Elijah lived in the presence of the Lord. Elijah took to heart and applied it to his life what his ancestor David had said when he said, Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. This is to be the full-time occupation, not just of prophets, but also of those of us who know the Lord. Those words were not given to an elitist group of followers of Yahweh. They were given by the Holy Spirit to all who would read it in that generation, but even extending to this generation. This is a message for us today, that we would seek the Lord and His presence like this man did And look what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. And that's exactly what he did. He comes, imagine this, coming to the most powerful person in his area of the world and saying, Face to face to him, there's coming a drought, and it's going to be by way of my command. We know who was actually making the command, do we not? It was God himself through the prophet. But that took a lot of courage on Ahab's part. And after saying it, I'm sure, I mean not on Ahab's part, on Elijah's part, and I'm sure Ab- Ahab was so caught off guard, he didn't know how to respond and before he knew it. Elijah had gone where the Lord had sent him. So, three and a half years passed. In those three and a half years, what we know is that God fed Elijah miraculously. How did he do it? He sent ravens with food to him who brought meat to him every day. And he told him to stay in the region of the brook Cherith. And the word translated brook really is not a word that we would usually use in our way of thinking as a brook. I think of a creek, uh, part of the terrain, the geography, where water would flow normally all the time. But it was a wadi. You know what a wadi is? If you're from the part of the country that I came from, it's a gully. A gully is a, an arroyo here where the heavy rains come. And when they come, they wash it out And when the rains leave, it becomes dried out. That was the kind of place where Elijah was sent by the Lord. He stayed there for a year until the water ran dry. Then he was sent on to a place called Zarephath. He encountered a widow who had one son. He came to her at the direction of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God said, tell this woman to feed you. Now that takes some gumption, doesn't it, to come up to someone whom you don't know and then say, do this for me. But he did it. And what happened was, the lady said, Sir, I only have enough flour in my pantry for one more small loaf of bread. I only have enough oil in my jar to mix it with the flour and get a final meal for my son and me, and then we're going to die. It was a terrible time for that woman. But he said, do what I told you. He said it the second time. She did what she was told, and they all were fed. And for the next two and a half years, they were fed. They never ran out of flour or of olive oil, I guess it would have been. That's a great story, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to have a prophet come to your house and do that for you? Sure cut down on the grocery bill, wouldn't it? It would be fantastic to have that. But that's what happened. Tremendous. And there's other things to be learned if you'll read the whole chapter about a great miracle in addition to the one I mentioned having to do with the son who grew ill and died and was raised from the dead by the Lord through this great prophet, Elijah. So what we're going to look at now is what happens three and a half years later. Remember, the last time that Ahab and Elijah had met, it didn't go well. For Ahab, or the nation Israel did it. So, what we know is, the scripture tells us, and we'll go back to chapter 18 now, verse 1. Now, it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So, Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria. That would be the capital of Israel. Ahab called Obadiah, not to be confused with the prophet Obadiah, who was over the household. And now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? The most wicked king who ever reigned in Israel's history had a man in his household who was really running the household who greatly feared the Lord. You might say, how could a man who had that kind of respect for God Stay in such a situation. Well, let me remind you that a precedent had already been set for that in Egypt. And a man named Joseph, a young man, albeit, a man named Joseph served in Pharaoh's court and was his right-hand person in governing the land. And then fast forward a few hundred years and you'll find yourself with a man named Daniel in Babylon, and he was the aid not just to one pagan king, but to three other pagan kings. And these kings saw in these men the kind of men they wanted serving them because they were God-fearing men. Some of you are placed in positions of authority, and the person who is over you is a godless person. God has put you there for the purpose of ministering in that situation, just like he had put Obadiah in this place. The Bible says, as we go back to chapter 18, verse 4, For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. That's another reason Obadiah was there, to take care of these hundred prophets who were true men of God, evidently. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. Let me pause here just a moment. Archaeologists have discovered that this king Ahab, during his reign, had at one time 2,000 chariots. That would take a lot of horses to pull those chariots. We know he would have had at least 2,000. And all this livestock, all these animals were dying off. And Ahab saw his wealth going down the drain and his power to defend the nation or be aggressive going with them. Verse 5 says, Then Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water, to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him and he recognized him and fell on his face and says, Is this you, Elijah, my master? And Elijah said to him, It is I. Go to your master, behold, and give him the knowledge that I am here. Well, we won't read all the detail In the interest of time, but there came this back and forth between Obadiah basically begging Elijah to retract his command because he knew it spells certain death for him because of the hatred that Ahab had for Elijah. And if he were the messenger, he would be killed probably, he thought. Let's look at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah... Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Now let me pause just a moment. The word troubler was a word which was also used to describe a snake. He didn't think too highly of this man, did he? But notice what Elijah said in response. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now, what are the Baals? The word Baal, some people pronounce it Baal, I'm going to pronounce it Baal. The word Baal is a neutral word by definition. It was the Canaanite word for Lord. Let me illustrate this for you. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 5, after God gives David, the second king and a man of God, great victory over the Philistines, he says, the Lord of the breakthrough has given us a victory. Do you know what word David used there for Lord? It's Baal is the word. Baal of the breakthrough. The Lord of the breakthrough. Baal perizim actually is what it would sound like in the Old Testament language. So it's a neutral word. However, what it had come to be known of as in practice was it was a kind of God that it was a God who was the prominent God among a pantheon of gods and goddesses in the Canaanite world. And this God was the fertility God. He consorted with Asherah, his female counterpart, and the cult was one that was strewn with lewdness and all kinds of sexual misconduct in the worship of Baal and Asherah. Baal was the God of the atmosphere, the God of the sun, the God of the clouds, the God of the wind. He was the God who would send thunder and lightning. Therefore, he was the God of fire because, you know, when lightning strikes strikes some places, it creates fires, doesn't it? And so he was all of those things and more. He was the leading God. And what had Ahab and his father's household done? They had deserted the one true God, Jehovah God, Yahweh, in order to follow this false God. Verse 19 says, Now then send and gather to me all Israel. This is Elijah ordering Ahab, the king, to gather all Israel at Mount Carmel. May I start there? Stop there, rather, for just a moment. I'm going to call it Carmel. could be Carmel. Jeremiah calls it Carmel by the Sea. Carmel, California probably gets its name from that. Carmel by the Sea to distinguish it from another Carmel in that region, Carmel or Carmel, which was near the city of Hebron or Hebron, which was David's initial headquarters in his monarchy. But nevertheless, this was the place for as long as history has been recorded where the Baals and other false gods of the Canaanites were worshipped. It was to Canaanite religion what Mount Olympus was to the Greeks in their mythology. And Baal was the king in that particular realm, of course, where they were worshipped. And what does Elijah say? Bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So what's he saying? Bring it on is what he's saying, really. It's time for a showdown. We're going to throw down here and see who the real God is. Look at verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now I'm going to look at the seven things with you that... This great prophet Elijah, remember he had a nature just like ours. He was a man who was an ordinary man, just like we might see ourselves as ordinary people. And God used him. We're going to see how God will use us, too, at the end of this time of study together. Look at verse 21. The first thing recorded, and really the keynote thing, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate? I like the NIV translation, waver between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. Stop right there for just a moment. Here's the challenge. Get off the fence. You can't serve Yahweh and Baal at the same time. This reminds us of what Jesus says, a man cannot serve two masters. We're divided. We know what the book of James says about the man who is double-minded or the woman who's double-minded. That person will be stable in all her ways and he will be unstable in all his ways. Instability is that which is characteristic of such people. And these people were having it both ways. They were wanting to serve the Lord part of the time, and they wanted to serve Baal the rest of the time. When Ahab and Elijah meet, and the forces of Baal meet on Mount Carmel, there are two worldviews which collide. And these worldviews are as old as human history, and they even continue to this day. The one view represented by Ahab... And the prophets of Baal and Asherah is the viewpoint which says we seek God for what we can get God to do for us. In contrast to that, the true way that we are to relate to God as our Lord, to Yahweh as our God, is we are to seek Him. I've already alluded to that, to make it our occupation, if not our preoccupation, to seek the Lord. For who He is. Not for what He can do for us. If you were to do an inventory of your prayer life, how much of it would be dedicated to seeking things for you? As compared to seeking the Lord for Himself. This is why the Bible says, Seek the Lord in His face. We're never told to seek His hand although He is very willing to take care of us. He's promised He will. But our primary focus is to be on the person of the Lord. How long will you waver or hesitate between two opinions, these two worldviews? You can't have your cake and eat it too, like these people were seeking to do. And notice what the writer of this passage says in the last sentence of verse 21. But the people did not answer Him. A word. They were speechless. Why? They knew he had put the finger on them and their problem. They were straddling the fence. Well, let's look at the second thing he says, beginning in verse twenty-two. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxes, and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up, place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now the people break the silence. Look at what they say. That is a good idea. That's an understatement, but it's true. At least they were affirming the truth. They knew enough about their own history as a people that God presenting Himself symbolically by fire was a large part of their history. Moses, on the backside of the Midianite desert, taking care of a flock of Sheep or goats or maybe a combination of the two. He's shepherding there and all of a sudden God reveals Himself in a burning bush. Then after He has taken the children of Israel from bondage and they're traveling in the wilderness, how are they guided? They're guided at night by a pillar of fire. And then when they get to the base of the Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given... There's smoke on the mountain. There's fire on the mountain. It's frightening to the people to the degree that they didn't want to get near that mountain for fear they would be killed. And that was the warning, actually. We know that the Bible says our God is a consuming fire. Our God is the one, as we're going to see in the passage, who answers by fire. Let's go and see what else... He tells the people after they have agreed that it's a good idea to do this between the prophets of Baal taking an oxen, preparing it for sacrifice, and this prophet Elijah taking an ox and preparing it also for sacrifice. Look at verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you or many, and call on the name of your God. But put no fire under it. Why would he say that to them? After all, Baal was a god of fire, wasn't he? And so, it should be a snap for him to provide fire. After all, he is the god of fire. Verse 26, Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. At least three hours, maybe longer. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. They were doing some sort of dance, undoubtedly, some sort of ritual dance in worship of Baal. They'd done it many times before. And they were crying out to him. Look at the next thing. Verse 27, it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. He was the original trash talker. Prophet, maybe not, but he's trash talking them and he's enjoying it, I think. Call out with a loud voice, for He is a God. Either He is occupied, meaning He's musing about something, He's thinking carefully about something, He's kind of like we as parents are sometimes when children come to us and they want something and you're right in the middle of something and said, wait a minute, I'm busy thinking about something or doing something. Or gone aside, and this, scholars think, would indicate that He'd stepped into the men's room He was preoccupied there or is on a journey. He's maybe traveling in protection of sailors of the Canaanite nation. And Baal would go with people who were devotees of his on such journeys. Or perhaps he's asleep, taking a nap, he's worn out and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their customs with swords and lances until the blood Gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Why not? Well, we read from Psalm 115. Why should the nations say, Where now is their God? Our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. We serve a sovereign God. Then the psalmist goes on to say, their gods are made of silver and gold. Their idols are made of silver and gold. The work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. Ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. Hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They cannot make a sound with a throat. And those who make them Become like them, everyone who trusts in them. The emptiness of serving anyone but Yahweh God, the one true God, the emptiness of that. What kind of life does that result in? A wasted life. A life that is spent on one's own pleasures as opposed to pursuing the Lord. As an aside, let me make this observation. I've made it probably every time i preach the last six years here, but it's worth making it one more time. And it says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. And in your right hands, in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Where does real pleasure reside? In the presence of our Lord. It's something that cannot be unsettled. Because He's not unsettled. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And those things that we put so much emphasis on in our lives, that we believe bring us pleasure, are fleeting, aren't they? And they can be very expensive too. Correct? But when we come before the Lord, and we understand that He wants us to make the primary motive our lives to know Him. We sang about that. And how important is that? The Bible says this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who You have sent. So, here we see the prophet. He is confronting these people. They're not hearing from their God, and they could be there till kingdom come, and they still wouldn't have heard from him because he's no God at all. Then the next thing he talks about here in verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. He wants them to get close. He wants them to hear what he's going to say. He wants them to see what's going to happen. Now look, the prophets of Baal, we know this from extra-biblical literature, were known from for doing what we would call magic sort of tricks to fool people, to make them want to follow them because of their magical powers. But he wants them to come near. He's saying, look, I'm different from these 850 prophets, 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah. I'm different. I want you to see the difference that Yahweh God makes in a person's life So come here, come close. So all the people, look, all of them, we don't know how many there were. The call was sent out all over Israel. There could have been thousands of people. It was a big throng of people. And they all gathered around. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. The question would be, when did it get torn down? I don't think it happened that day. It could have. I don't think it did. I think it had gone into disrepair because, remember, these people were worshiping Baal, the Baalim, multiple expressions of Baal, multiple lords, on that spot, the most sacred spot for religion in all of Israel. And so, the altar for burnt offering there to the one true God had fallen in disrepair. Now, notice what he does. Verse 31, Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood. You get the picture of what's going on here? He arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Now, some of you are thinking with me, I know, and you're saying, there's been a drought. Water is more than a precious commodity. Water would not be wasted. Where did they get the water? Water was so important to drinking. How could they take four barrels? It's not like a water pitcher. The word means barrel. Four barrels of water and they're going to pour it over this animal who is being sacrificed and letting it come down. And then two other times, he said, let's do it again, the second time. And let's do it again. So where did the water come from? Mount Carmel borders the Mediterranean Sea. It doesn't matter if you use salt water to do a sacrifice, does it? It'll work, won't it? It'll dampen the potential sacrifice in the area around it. And then the Scripture says in verse 35, the water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. He was leaving nothing on the table, was he? He was saying, hey, look, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Look at the sixth thing which he says here, verse 36, verse 36, At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, there would be the evening sacrifice in Jerusalem at the temple, is what he's thinking about, hundreds of miles away. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that You are God in Israel, and that I am Your servant. I have done all these things at Your word. We have no way to fully appreciate this prayer. Put it in contrast to... The minimum of six hours that these 450 prophets of Baal had carried on. I, you talk about sensory perception in worship. It was a multi level presentation. All kinds of drama and singing and dancing to no avail. And here's this man, man of God, very calm. And his prayer is so theologically correct. And he bases the petition on the fact that he had done all the things according to what? The Word of God. Herein lies the understanding of what real worship is. Real worship of the one true God is a human response to a divine relation, revelation, which results in action. God had spoken on more than one occasion to Elijah. And Elijah had responded. And he had gone to Mount Carmel. He had done exactly what God said to do. Therefore, he believed God would answer. Do you believe God is not a man so that he should lie? Or a son of man that he should repent? Do you believe that he says it? He's bound by his own integrity to do what he says. Elijah did. And that's what God wants for us. To have that kind of relationship to the Lord. To believe Him. And to pray with confidence. And in that simple prayer, there are only 19 words in Hebrew that translate into this simple prayer. That is a brief prayer by anybody's estimation. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Are stones typically combustible with a normal fire? No way, right? This was a supernatural fire sent from God and consumed not just the offering itself, but the altar itself and the dust around it. And then verse 39 says, When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They were converted, weren't they? Remember the challenge in verse 21? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. They knew they had to forsake Baal and be sold out to the Lord. It was the only answer to the dilemma that they face, and theirs is not unlike ours. It's the only answer to that part of our hearts when we're quiet. We know there's still something that's not right in our hearts. Even those of us who do worship at times the Lord, but we don't make Him the principal focus of our lives in everyday life. This doesn't mean you go be part of a monastery. It means that you practice the presence of God. There's a little book, a guy named Brother Lawrence. He was in his early 60s. He left his job, and he was too old to become a priest. He became a brother in a monastery. He worked in the kitchen, and he wrote a book. It really was a series of letters to a relative. It is called The Practice of the Presence of God. In it, he talks about how when I do the dishes, I can practice the presence of God. Do you believe that whatever you're doing can be an avenue, I'm talking about for a living now, do you believe that what you are doing can be an avenue for the practice of the presence of God? Well, if it's ethical, if it's not immoral, yes, it is. Because you interact with people, God will use you to minister to people, and God will be honored and glorified in that situation. And you can say, the Lord, He is God. Always being ready to give an answer to those who ask why you have hope in the midst of all this COVID-19 and all the turmoil that is associated with the last five or six months in American history. How can you be peaceful? How can you have hope? Well, it's because the God of hope indwells me. And the God of peace has said if I fix my mind on Him, He will keep me in perfect peace. Peace. This is the answer to what ails anybody, me, you, anybody. We can practice the presence of God wherever we go. And then verse 40, Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slew them there. My guess is that more than one person in this room, has had someone ask the question, and perhaps you have asked the question yourself, it seems like the God of the Old Testament is a different God from the God of the New Testament. That's a serious question that requires a good answer. And here we see this situation where he kills, I'm talking about Elijah now, kills 450 prophets. That's a slaughter, is what was at stake if he didn't? What if he said, I'm going to let them go? They were unchanged, weren't they? They hadn't been converted, had they? What would they do once they were free? Maybe they would have been banished from the country, but they would have come back in and what would they do? The same thing they had done for decades. Propagate a false doctrine of who God is. And perpetuate that, and people who were descendants of Abraham would be drawn back in. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, I invite you to take a quick look with me at Genesis 15 to seek some perspective on the God of the Old Testament. Is He just a God who is bloodthirsty? Is He a God who loves to wreak Wrath on people. Well, let's look. Verse 12 of Genesis 15. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Did that come to pass, by the way? Hundreds of years later, after this Statements made by God, a promise that the descendants of Abraham would be enslaved. What country were they enslaved in? Well, it was Egypt, right? They were there for 400 years. 14 says, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Is that what happened? Certainly it did. Read the Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace you will be buried at a good old age. Now look at this verse. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. A generation was a hundred years, four hundred years. They'll return here. Where was Abram, who later was known as Abraham? Where was he when this vision occurred to him? He was in Canaan. That's where he was. And goes on to say, For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Who were the Amorites? The Amorites were the inhabitants of Canaan. Canaanites is who they were. God, who is a God of justice. Aren't you glad He is a God of justice? We have that built into our being, people created in His image. We know there are certain things that just aren't wrong, right. They're wrong and they need to be taken care of correctly. He is also a God of mercy, isn't He? He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's not for me to argue about God's lack of mercy. He doesn't have to be merciful. He's God. But He chooses to be merciful. How many years did God delay the reduction of those people because of their refusal to repent? They had 400 years. The Canaanite people, including these people that are referred to, had time to repent. God is patient. Incredibly patient, but his patience is not infinite. There comes a time when he insists upon justice. Well, let me finish with some principles that we can apply to our lives. I'll try to be brief and as succinct as possible. The first principle is God uses the person who is convinced that God plus him or her equals a majority God's math is vastly different than ours. We're impressed by numbers. God isn't. We're impressed by addition. God is only impressed by multiplication. How did God launch the church? Jesus spent the lion's share of his time in his public ministry, ministering to 12 people. Yes, he did speak to large crowds, but that was the exception rather than the rule. And he poured into those men, he poured into those people. The reason being, he knew that his God's his Father God had said, "I want you to reach the masses through the individual." By multiplication, not just adding people. I have no doubt that God could have used an infinite number of people to reach all the people in the world just like that. But for some reason, He has not chosen to do so. But what He did with this strategy, which is given to us in different places, but nowhere more clearly than in Second Timothy two two, where the Bible says... Paul speaking to Timothy, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, the things which you've heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. And that would include women too. Who are also able to teach others. That's the method of the Lord. The Lord used a small number to turn the world upside down, is what the writer of Acts says in 17.6. Just a few people... In God's kingdom, it's never how many, but what kind of people. Are they people who are becoming more like Christ because they are taught how to study the Word of God? They are taught that they are to deny themselves in loving each other, even as they love themselves. They are taught to abide in Christ, depending exclusively upon Christ for what they need for living, and how they can be used by God to introduce others who can be disciple-makers like they are. We are more impressed in the American church with the size of our group, not the size of our God. God is diminished by most of American Christians, so-called. Size doesn't determine significance. And I'm not advocating that the church just shrink and shrink and shrink. I'm not. Now, I believe if we as a church do what we're supposed to do as disciples of Christ, we won't be quiet about Jesus. We'll share Christ, and people will be saved. Why? We're abiding in Christ, and people will come to know Jesus, and we will help them to grow. God will bring them our way. They'll be brought to us. Here's the second principle, in addition to the fact that God uses... The person who's convinced that God plus him or her is a majority. God uses the person who isn't problem-oriented but potential-oriented. I'm not talking about being an ostrich and sticking your head in the sand and not acknowledging problems. But we need to be people who quit living under the circumstances and realize that trouble is really properly viewed as an opportunity to, for growth in our lives. We're to count it all joy when we encounter various trials or troubles because we'll never mature and grow. And as we mature, people observe the way we handle trouble and they're drawn to Christ. Whether they're people in our family or in our workplace or our neighborhood, they'll see how can she be so peaceful in the light of what she's dealing with? If we are making progress in tandem with the Lord Jesus Christ. We take His yoke upon us. We learn from Him. We can be sure there will be opposition. Paul writes in the closing words of his letter to the Corinthians, the first one, and he says, there is a wide door for effective service which is open to me in Ephesus, and there are many opponents. Anytime you get ready to walk with the Lord, you can expect pushback from the enemy. It's there, it's part of the package, but we don't have to be defined by that. Do you know what the word problem is derived from? It's derived from a word in the Greek language, which literally means, volo means I throw, pra or pro means forward, I throw forward. God gives us problems so that we can go forward, we can grow in the face of the problems which we encounter The question is, where are our eyes? Are they on the Lord or on the problem? If we focus on the problem, it's going to be a miserable life. If we focus on the one who solves the problems as we trust in him, and he even uses the problem to thrust us ahead in our development as followers. Here's the last principle. God uses people who don't Focus their attention on their ability, but their availability. You might say, Well, I'm not much, Mike. I don't have much. You got the Lord if you know Jesus, right? And we know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, correct? It's true. We just trust the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding in all our ways, acknowledge Him. And He will indeed make our paths straight. Isn't He a great God in this regard? I wish I had more time to talk about that, but let me finish going back to the 21st verse. Remember I said it's the key verse. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, what are we to do? Follow Him. And what does Jesus say? Come follow me and what will I do? I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, we'll find people who need Christ. We're to make a decision, just like those people in unison, it seems like all of them made a decision. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Not a mixture, not a a jumbling together of worldliness and godliness. The two don't mix. Why is indecision harmful? It divides our energies, doesn't it? It does. Have you ever been indecisive and you were just paralyzed by? It? it leads to inaction. And the inaction most often leads to wrong action. Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. There's no in between. The worst opposition to the Christian faith is not philosophy of men. The various isms, socialism, communism, hedonism, existentialism, nihilism. Go on with all the isms. Those things are ploys of the devil to destroy the church and destroy Christians. It hasn't worked yet, has it? And it won't work. There will always be a remnant of people who are committed. But we want that remnant to grow. Here's the question for us today. Have we crossed over? To where we say, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Would you bow your head? Have you made that commitment to the Lord? Are you tired of just sort of following the Lord? Well, the good news is, it's not too late. You wouldn't be here today. You had no idea what I was going to be talking about tonight. Today, rather. and We just pray in Jesus' name now, Lord. That You won't let any one person whom You have earmarked for Yourself not to be shared with any other false God would give himself or herself now, right now, Lord, to be fully controlled by You. Would You dare to say that to Jesus? Lord, I want You to be, as far as I know what that means, under Your full and complete control thank you Lord Amen